Good evening. Glad you're here. We're going to get started. Glad you made the effort to be here tonight. A couple of uh, quick announcements before we jump in and get started tonight. First off, want to remind you or let you know, Sunday night, uh, December 11th at 6 o'clock, again, that's a Sunday night, we're going to have our church-wide Christmas banquet uh, in the FLC. You'll need a ticket to get in. The tickets are free. You can contact the church office. And they'll reserve you a ticket. Or Sunday, they'll be having t- they'll have tickets to pass out uh, in the church foyer. As part of that, we're going to have a great meal. As part of that, we're also going to have a talent showcase, uh, not a talent contest. There won't be any voting or ranking. Uh, but if you have a talent you'd like to showcase, whatever that is, uh, maybe you want to sing or dance or however that is. If you want to. Uh, let us know. We'll get you in the order uh, for that. So again, that's Sunday night, the 11th, uh, starting at 6 o'clock. Then this Monday, which is December 5th, is our ladies' Christmas celebration. Supper is going to be at 6 o'clock. That's also in the FLC. Uh, worship will follow that. It is going to be a great night. It's going to be a big deal. And so you'll want to plan to be here for that. Not only that, but to invite folks to join you. So ladies, uh, our, our Christmas celebration for ladies Uh, this coming Monday at 6 o'clock in the FLC. Be sure and plan uh, for that. Let's start off tonight with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we come tonight. We're thankful for this night. We're thankful for uh, the goodness that we have in you. We're thankful for our Savior, Jesus. We're thankful for hope uh, that endures tonight, this very night. We're thankful for peace uh, that is established and finished in the work of Christ. And so we just come and worship you tonight, we celebrate you, we exalt you tonight, we hold up high the name of our Savior Jesus tonight. We're thankful for the opportunity to come as your people and to fellowship, to eat together. Uh, I pray that you bless those that had a hand in the meal, and then I pray, Lord, again, that we use that in in your service. And then I pray for uh, our classes that are meeting tonight all around the church, from the littlest kid class to the oldest class, I pray that Uh, It is your truth that we look at, and it's your truth uh, that's upheld. And then I pray that that would bear fruit uh, in kids that have a foundation that's built and stacked upon for for youth, again, that that foundations continue to be built upon. And then for us as adults, uh, that we would draw closer to you, and that our foundation, again, would be strengthened uh, this very night. We tell you we love you, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, tonight we're back in our study, The Grand Scheme of Things, uh, it's been a pretty good break. We had our 30-day revival. We had some other events as well. And so we're coming back to our study tonight, the grand scheme of things, a movement through Scripture starting in Genesis going all the way uh, to the book of Revelation. In all of that, our goal is to see the story of Christ as it unfolds. And so we're back in our study. Uh, this is, I believe, the 32nd week. Uh, our lesson tonight is entitled The Great Divide, and it's talking about the splitting of of uh, the kingdom of, of Israel uh, into two different nations. Our, our verses tonight are found in 1 Kings chapter 11 and 1 Kings chapter 12. Uh, as you've noticed, as is our pattern, that's more than we can read uh, in this hour, more than we would attempt to read in this hour. And so you can read that. Uh, you can go home and study that, think about that. But it's 1 Kings chapter 11, 1 Kings chapter 12. From that, uh, we're going to pull out our verses for our study tonight. So again, our lesson is entitled The Great Divide. Our Bible verses are 1 Kings chapter 11 and chapter 12. Our key point there, if you have your uh, worksheet, pride, jealousy, 
and the resulting division are marks of human sinfulness. Uh, we're going to see this, and we're going to talk a little bit about this, uh, but anytime you have sin, anytime you have uh, the going against of God's word, it's going to be marked by division. That's one of the markers. We're going to see that. True unity and peace are only found in the Prince of Peace, uh, our Savior, Jesus Christ. That is our, our key point. All right, moving into the lesson tonight, uh, the first point is called the faulty finish of the favored son. That is talking about King Solomon. We spent, uh, I believe, three weeks looking at King David. We spent one week talking about King Solomon. Well, this is the continuation and really the wrap-up of King Solomon. He is David's son. Remember, he is granted godly wisdom, and the Bible says, to an extent never possessed by any person. And so he is actually, the Bible says, the wisest person ever to live. Nobody's ever been wiser before, and no one's ever been wiser after that. He is given godly wisdom. Uh, he is the wisest person ever to live. Now, remember, and I think it's important to, to think about the words and the terms um, in our study on Sunday night, we see this. We see it also in our study tonight. Uh, wisdom, what is wisdom? We talk about being wise or, or seeking wise counsel or finding a person that, that shows wisdom. Well, actually, wisdom is God's truth. Simple as that, godly truth. Uh, the only wisdom we would have is based upon the truth, and truth comes from God. And so wisdom is godly truth. Now, uh, understand our God is responsible for all things. Uh, he's perfect in all things, and he's infinite in his wisdom because of that. So if we have God's wisdom, uh, we're not needing other pieces to fit in. We're not looking for other things to fill in, but we actually have the perfect wisdom of God. It is perfect, it is infinite, and it is found from God. He actually tells us in the New Testament, if we need wisdom, ask him for wisdom, uh, he doesn't shame us in that, but he actually gives us wisdom. And so we're going to see tonight, wisdom is God's truth, godly wisdom. Uh, in our study on Sunday night, we see ignorance uh, is not possessing God's wisdom. And so um, it, it's just a person that doesn't have it, hasn't heard it, has not accumulated it. So if you find a person that's ignorant of God's wisdom, they just do not have it. But then there's a person that shows up uh, over and over and over again in our study in Proverbs, and we see it as we move through the Old Testament, and that is the foolish person. The Bible says a foolish person, a fool, this person has God's wisdom, has received God's wisdom, but they choose not to operate on it. And so here's the right thing, here's the best thing, here's the good thing, and yet they're going to live in neglect of that. That is a foolish person. Well, God gives Solomon, King Solomon, um, great wisdom, wisest person to ever live. Now, not only that, as we looked last time, God greatly blessed the rule of King Solomon. He added to his kingdom uh, splendor, uh, geographic area. Uh, it, it was a marvel, the kingdom uh, that he reigned over. In fact, it was really probably unimaginable by today's standard. I've tried to make some comparisons and really uh, the value of it, the wealth of it, the gold, the fine jewels uh, probably couldn't even be calculated in today's terms. It was an awesome thing. Uh, people actually traveled uh, just to see the splendor of the kingdom. And so God gives him great wisdom. 
God blesses his rule in this time period greatly, and, and he sees tremendous things. And yet the truth is this, Solomon failed to live up to God's commands. For whatever reason, he sins grievously. Now the Bible tells us, we're going to look at some verses here, that his problem is he tried to partially follow God. He tried to follow God, but he also tried to indulge in the things of the world. Well, I want you to think about how that looks like us today. Hey, we love God. Hey, we want to follow Christ. But at the same time, there's a temptation to follow and to pursue the things of the world. That's what King Solomon does. He seeks to, to follow God and pursue the things of the world at the same time. Let me read. I'm in 1 Kings chapter 11. Verses 1 through 10. All right, here we go. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Now, listen to that. For they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after the Asherah and the goddess of the Sidians. Now watch this. These are idols, uh, false worship, pagan worship that he brings in. And Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemesh, the detestable idol of Moab on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. All right, so we see King Solomon. Uh, he is blessed mightily. His kingdom grows. He possesses great wisdom, and yet he turns and sins grievously. Now, notice the progression there. First thing it says, he took many wives, and that, that was his first sin. People he wasn't supposed to associate with. The people weren't. He took many wives. Now, there's probably... Uh, at least two purposes in that. Uh, the first one probably would have been just straight pleasure. Uh, he wanted another wife and another wife. Uh, the second thing would be for political gain. Uh, he would marry this person, and it might settle a dispute with their father, and it might allow him to take on more land or have him to have favor in a neighboring region. And so it could be political as well. And so here he is. He takes on these wives. Uh, he has political gain. He has pleasure. And then the Bible says he begins to take on their ways, just as God said would happen. He begins uh, to take on the things of their culture, 
And most importantly, he begins to worship their false gods. Now from there, he not only follows their false gods, he begins to encourage and set up false worship there in Jerusalem. And so it's a progression. It is wicked. It is evil. It is sinful. And the Bible says that God's anger burned toward King Solomon. I want to ask a couple of questions right here. And, and they're, they're pretty important for us to think about and work through tonight. And let me ask you a couple of questions. First one is this. How could possessing God's wisdom not have kept Solomon from sin? Now, I want you to think about that for a second. That's absolutely crazy. You're the wisest person to ever live. You have God's wisdom. You have God's truth. How is it that you have God's wisdom, that you have God's truth, and yet you fall into such great sin? Doesn't that seem crazy? If any person shouldn't have done it, it should have been this person with godly wisdom. Well, let me show you a couple things here. One of them is a, a set of verses that I was looking at earlier this week. This is in the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew chapter 7. Jesus has just taught. Uh, he's just trained his disciples. Uh, it's an interesting thing. After this event, most of those that had come to listen would turn and not follow Christ, that it was too costly. But here's how Jesus concludes that. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, watch this, what same word, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. In the, in the book of James, it says a, a similar thing, that we're to be not just hearers of God's word, but we're to be doers of God's word. In James, it says not deluding or not fooling yourself. And so uh, how does he have God's wisdom and not stay out of sin? That seems like, a, like an insane thing. All right, let's go a little bit further. How could experiencing God's great blessing not have kept Solomon from sin. Now think about that for just a second. He is blessed. If he, he has food, he has pleasure, he has stuff, he has entertainment, he has dancers, he has singers, all of the stuff. And God has blessed him. God has blessed him tremendously. Do you not think that he would wake up and say, man, God's blessed me. Man, I've got awesome stuff all around me. What a, what a gracious God to have blessed me. Don't you think he'd have been so full of thankfulness that he would say, you know what, I'm going to follow the God that's blessed me. I'm going to honor the God. I'm going to be obedient to the God that has blessed me to that extent. How could experiencing God's great blessing not have kept Solomon from sin? I thought about those two, possessing God's wisdom. How, how could that not keep him from sin? Seeing God's blessing, how could that not keep him from sin? Here's another one I thought about. How could watching God's dealings with his father, David, not have kept Solomon away from sin? Now think about that for just a second. Here is King David, and he, he sins, and he sins uh, 
grievously, same thing. And then think about David, all the trouble that he has. Uh, his infant son dies. His other son turns on him. His other son uh, rapes another sister. And it's trouble, and it's trouble, and it's trouble, and it's trouble. God's judgment upon David. How does Solomon not go? My dad suffered for sin. We suffered for his sin. How does he not see that and say, you know what, I'm not going to go that way. I'm going to honor our God through obedience. Today, think about us. Don't we also know what would honor God and not honor God? Don't we also know what would be walking in obedience and what would be walking in disobedience? What would it take? The word of God, a greater fear of God, uh, the seeing the consequence of sin, what would it take? Well, here, here's the answer. I think about all those things. What would have kept Solomon out of sin? It wasn't great wisdom. It wasn't great blessing. It wasn't seeing the consequence of sin. Here's the answer, and we see this word pop up all the way through this study, and that is this. What would have kept Solomon out of sin is a heart given to God. That's what it said. He had a heart divided. His heart wasn't like David's given to God. What would have changed would have been a heart given to God, a heart that loves God. Yes, the wisdom would have helped. Yes, seeing the example of his, of his dad would have helped. But what would have made the difference is a heart given to God. All right, next section tonight. Next section is this. No sin goes unpunished. Now, we can be sure of that. We shouldn't be sure of that. No sin go, goes unpunished. God sees Solomon's sin. The Bible says he was angered at that. I, I wonder, um, do we ever think about God's anger towards sin? He was angered at it. And because of the sins of Solomon, God declares a punishment. 1 Kings 11 11 through 13. So the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Wow. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. God says there's going to be a consequence. Uh, no sin goes unpunished. I see your sin, and the kingdom is going to be pulled out of your hand. Now, uh, God had made a promise to David, and he doesn't break the promise. There's going to be a remnant in Jerusalem for the sake of David and for the sake of the promises made concerning Jerusalem. Right, let me ask you a couple questions right here. First one is this, do you think God is angered more by some sins than others? And, I, and I, you don't have to answer out loud, I'm just asking, do you think God, he's, he really gets angry at this one, but maybe not so much this one. Do we think there's some sins that we can get by with? And maybe he's busy, or maybe it's a lesser sin. Maybe it's not as big of a deal. And so there's a couple sins that he's not going to be as mad at this. Uh, maybe you change two lines on your tax return. Maybe you do something at the grocery store. Well, he's not worried about that. He's got other stuff. Here's a question. Do we sometimes think the consequence for that sin 
is worth the enjoyment of that sin. And I'm, I'm not sure that we don't sometimes go, if I do this, this is either going to happen or it's probably going to happen. But you know what? I'd rather do the sin. I'd rather have the fun. I'd rather do this thing. And so I wonder if we weigh things out and say, it's, it's possible I could get caught in this. And I, it's possible we could suffer this. It, maybe we won't, but maybe we will. But you know what? The enjoyment of this sin is going to be worth it. And so we go ahead and march into sin. Why do we have such a light view of sin? And I, I watch our, our culture, our world wants us to be numb to sin, to not get upset by sin, uh, to start to overlook sin. And so we put it in our songs, we put it in our TV shows, we don't get too upset when we hear about it. Our world wants us to become numb to sin. Well, here's, here's the question. So how do we have a correct or better view of sin? And that's a big deal. How do we have a better view of sin? I came up with two answers, and there, there might be a better answer, and there might be another answer, but these are, these are two of the things that I see. How do we have a better view of sin? Two ways. First one is this. Draw closer to Christ. Be closer to Christ, to Jesus. Now, what that means is that in your day, you're considering Christ. You're thinking about Christ. In your day, you're worshiping Christ. You know what? I have no hope outside of Christ. You know what? My peace is fixed in Christ. In your day, you're serving Christ. You know what? I've got a mission, and I've got things to do for that, that, that Christ has given me to do, a commission. And so in the course of your day, you're thinking about Christ, you're considering Christ, you're worshiping Christ, you're serving Christ. If you're doing those things, I can promise you this, you will have a better perspective about sin. Let me give you an example, and I, I think this is a pretty good example. When folks come to see me and they say, we've decided to get married, and, and hey, we've, we've set a date, we're going to get married, um, what advice do you have? And, and usually I like to talk to them, talk to them about what marriage is and, and the definition of marriage and and what God's expectations in marriage are. Um, but then here's, I really don't have a whole lot of stuff to say, but I do have something very practical, and that is this. I believe the best thing you can do, the most impactful thing you can do in your marriage is to pray together. That's what I think. And I could say, here's this, here's that, do this. I give you a list, but I can tell you this, the most, I believe, impactful thing that you can do in your marriage is to pray together. And here's what I think. I, I believe this and I'll, I'll stand by. Um, I think this, if you will start your day by praying together, I think you're less likely to get to work and say, well, he's no good and he's a bum and I don't like him and he's always messing things up. I think you're less likely to have an affair on a person that you prayed with that day. I'm saying that. You pray with them that morning, I think you're less likely. I think you're less likely to punch somebody, to abuse somebody, to hit somebody that you prayed with that day. And so I can start going down the list. I think the most impactful thing we could do is to pray together. Well, you know what? It's the same picture here. You want to have a good view of sin. You want to have a great perspective of sin. You get closer to Christ. You worship him. You walk with him. You talk to him and you serve him. 
And as you do those things, you know what? Sin becomes repulsive. Sin becomes unnecessary. Sin becomes hurtful to the, the Savior that you're drawing closer to. First thing is this. How do you have a better view of sin? You get closer to Christ. Second thing is this. How do you have a better view, of, view perspective of sin? Uh, you be steady in the Word of God. You be steady in the Word of God. If you are reading God's Word, you say, well, I don't understand that. It's too hard. Don't have time. If you will say, all right, I'm going to read this. I'm going to make an endeavor. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. Once in the morning, once in the evening, once every other day. If you'll be steady in the Word of God, here's what will happen. You'll start to be shaped by the Word of God. You'll start to be convicted by the Word of God. You'll start to be led by the Word of God. I think it's going to come up on 16 years ago. I started reading the chapter of Proverbs that matches the day of the calendar. So on the 17th day, you read the 17th chapter of Proverbs. It takes about five minutes. A lot of it, you just, you're just going and it goes. But you know what? That starts to show up in your head. And so somebody, I've always told this story, somebody jumps up and they say something crazy and some event goes crazy and, and everything in you wants to just go nuts on somebody. And it says in your head, Answer a fool not according to his folly, lest you be a fool yourself. And you go, oh, I'll just be quiet. <laughs> I won't jump on them here in United. If you'll spend time in God's word, it will lead you, shape you, convict you, and you'll have a better perspective of sin. So here's the deal. How do we have a better view, perspective of sin? Draw closer to Christ. Be steady in the word of God. All right, next section. Death and taxes. King Solomon dies. Interesting account. The kingdom goes to his son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam, he jumps in there. He's going to take the reins. And he considers lightening the tax load of the people at the request of Jeroboam, who is a servant of King Solomon. This guy says, you know what? Your dad built a lot of stuff, and he charged us a lot of taxes to pay for it. Uh, you have all this stuff. And the people will support you if you'll lower their taxes. And so this guy, Jeroboam, says, lower the taxes. People will follow you. He asks his advisors, and his advisors say, that's a good decision. That's a wise decision. It seems like he's going to do that, but then he talks to his friends, and his friends say, no way. If you do that, they'll think you're weak. If you'll do that, uh, they'll, they'll run all over you, and it's better to be the sting of a scorpion. And so he says, be, they say, be harder, raise the taxes. And that's what he does. He follows their advice to show his strength. When the announcement is made, the people begin to revolt. First Kings chapter 12, verses 1 through 15. Then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel came to Shechem to make him king. Now when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, he was living in Egypt for he was yet in Egypt where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon. Then they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke hard. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. Then he said to them, Depart from me for three days, then return to me. So the people departed. King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, How do you counsel me to answer this people? Then they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today 
and will serve them and grant them their petition and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he forsook the counsel of the elders, which they had given him, and consulted the young men who grew up with him and served him. So he said to them, what counsel do you give that I may answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, lighten the yoke which your father has put on us. The young man, who, young men who grew up with him spoke to him, saying, thus you shall say to the people who spoke to you, saying, your father made our yoke heavy. Now you make it lighter for us, but you shall speak to them. My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. I'm stronger and bigger than him. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Then Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day as the king had directed, saying, Return to me on the third day. The king answered the people harshly, for he forsook the advice of the elders which they had given, and he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of events from the Lord that he might establish his word, which the Lord spoke through Ahiah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Here's a big question. They revolt. And the revolt begins, they, they hear the, the, the verdict. Here's the question, and, and I think it's an interesting question for us to have an answer to tonight. Here's the question. Who should Rehoboam have listened to and why? Who should you listen to and why? And I, I read that account, and you wonder, well, who should he listen to? Why should he listen to those people? Okay, you're living your life. Who should you listen to? You need advice? You want guidance? Who should you listen to as well? Now, here's the thing. In this case, as we listen to the story, as we read the story, we would say, well, he should have trusted the advisors of his dad. That's who he should have listened to. And that's what we would say. Well, here's my question. Can you always trust your advisors? It looks like in this case he should have, but can you always trust your advisors? Now, I think in our day, we might say, well, you should trust your friends. Those advisors don't know you. They don't care about you. But these folks have grown up with you. They know you. They care for you. And so maybe you ought to ask your close friends. Don't ask a stranger. Don't ask an expert. Ask your friends. Well, here's my question about that. Can you always trust your friends? Here's, here's today's answer, I think. Well, ask your friends. Ask an expert. And then in then our world, we, we value individualism. We'd say this, trust yourself. Maybe you can't always trust your advisors. Maybe you can't always trust your friends. Trust yourself. Be true to yourself. You have a gut instinct. Go with that. Trust yourself. Well, here's my question for that. Can you always trust yourself? Maybe you're greedy. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you have not all the information. Can you always trust yourself? Well, here's, here's the answer. Whose advice should you seek and whose advice should you go with? Now, I'm going to give you two answers here. The first thing is this. Our answer for the second time is to have a heart given to God in, 
loving God, sold out to the worship of, of our Savior, and then go to God's Word. And that's, that's the best advice I can give you. You know what? I want to honor Christ, and I want to know Him, and so I'm going to go to His perfect wisdom. I'm going to go to His Word. So the first thing is this. Who can you trust? Trust God's Word. You've, you've submitted to Him. Go to God's Word. Second thing is this, however. The Bible does say uh, there is a benefit in a, in, a, in a number of advisors. There are people we should talk to. I think about folks uh, that they seem to make great decisions. They seem to have godly advice. So there are times the Bible will tell us to seek uh, their advice. Well, the second answer I'll give you this. Whether it's an expert or whether it's a friend or whoever it is, you're going to go to a person that has godly wisdom. And so just like you're going to go to God's word, you're going to go to a person proficient in God's word. And you're going to say, well, what do I do about this in my finances? What do I do about this in my marriage? What do I do about these decisions for the future? And they're going to say, well, here's what God's word says. Here's where he's been faithful in the past. Here's where he leads us in the future. Whose advice do you seek? Number one, with your heart given to God, you go to God's word. Number two, you seek out people also uh, given to God's wisdom, God's word. All right, next section. When two is not better than one. When two is not better than one. Because of their anger, this catastrophic, huge thing takes place. Uh, Jeroboam and ten of the tribes of Israel split away from King Rehoboam and his followers. So Jeroboam's there. He's just a servant. <laughs> he has no lineage. He's just a servant. But he hears the verdict and he and he rallies the ten tribes and says, well, we'll go do something else. Jeroboam and the ten tribes of Israel split away from King Rehoboam and his followers. The tribe of Judah, that's, that's the, the south tribe by where Jerusalem's at, and Benjamin become the southern kingdom. Uh, they become what's, what's known as Judah. Uh, it's funny I don't know that we ever teach this. I don't know that it ever comes up in Sunday school lessons. I don't know if you say, well, the, the divided kingdom, what people know what you're talking about, this is what happens. Now, uh, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin become the southern kingdom known as Judah. The other 10 tribes become the northern kingdom known as Israel. Uh, Israel makes Jeroboam their king. Uh, because of their division, the northern kingdom selects uh, new capital cities, and they, they head up north. 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 16 through 24. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, let's go. Now look after your own house, David. Y'all do that. We're leaving. So Israel departed to their tents. But as for the sons of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death. And King Rehoboam made haste to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. It came about when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. None but the tribe of Judah followed the house of David. Now when Rehoboam had come to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 
180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, You must not go up and fight against your relatives, the sons of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing has come from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and returned and went their way according to the word of the Lord. Rehoboam says, you know what, we'll go and we'll fight them. We'll go and we'll fix this with, with our military. Uh, the prophet comes and says, nope, uh, we're not going to fight our relatives. God has ordained this. God sees this. God knows this. This was a judgment already told back to Solomon. And so he says, we're not going to strike out in a military campaign. All right, last section tonight, close but not the same. Close but not the same. I think this is a very interesting section. I'm going to start in verse 25 and go to verse 33. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. Jeroboam said in his heart, listen to this, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam the king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. He says this, they know to worship in Jerusalem. They're trained to go to the temple in Jerusalem. If they start to go back to Jerusalem, they're going to remember the word of their God. They're going to remember their king, and they're going to kill me. So the king consulted and made two golden calves, and he said to them, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. I don't want to bother with that. Behold, your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel and the other in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made houses on high places and made priests from among all the people who were not the sons of Levi. Jeroboam instituted a, a feast in the eighth month and on the 15th day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah. And he went up to the altar, thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. And he stationed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. All right, notice what happens here in this section. To keep the people from going back to Jerusalem, he makes new places of worship. All right, we're not going to the temple. We'll go to these two places. He also makes new worship days and new worship events. Now he copies one of them. We'll be just like them, and you can instead of going there, go here. Then he starts to make new ones. Now I want you to notice this. They were very similar to the ones that God had commanded. Very simply, here's what he does. He builds a false religion to replace the one they had left. You know what? We need to stay up here. We need your loyalty to be here. And so he builds a false religion. We've got new places to worship. We've got new days to worship on. 
And he, and he builds a false religion to, to replace the one they had left. All right, we're going to end right there, but we're going to pull out a couple things out of that section. What do we see about man-made religions from this account? Now, you have the account. We read it. Now, what do we see about man-made religions? Now, um, the faults always, we've been reading about it, we've been studying about it, always comes and tries to pull us away from the truth. Uh, we see the reason here, but what, what do we see about man-made false religions? Now, I just started making a list, and, I, and this isn't the end of the list, and there's probably things that I don't have on this list, but I want you to notice this, and I want you to be aware of these things that you see when you have a man-made religion, a false religion. All right, here's a couple things. First thing, they seek the loyalties of the people. They seek the loyalties of the people. Second thing, they are often very close to the truth. They're often very close to the truth. In fact, lots of times they will copy the truth. You ever, you ever watch the, the Mormon church, um, Mormon cult, and how the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we like the King James Version, and, and we believe in the Christ, and we believe, and they take words, and they're similar, but they're not the truth. That's what they do. They are often very close to the truth, even copying the truth. All right, here's one we see there, and I think we see it in our world and over the, over the history of the world. They often tie in national pride and politics. Well, we're Israel. Well, we're the 10 tribes, and we're, we've written them off. And what portion do we have down there? And if you're going to be loyal to this, you're going to be loyal to this false religion. They make alternatives to doing what God has asked. God says, do these things. And they say, well, let's don't do those things. Let's do these things. They make alternatives to doing what God has asked. They usually exalt and lift up a person. And you just go through the systems. Now, there's always a person that benefits um, from, from that false religion. They usually lift up a person. Here's Joseph Smith. Uh, who, here's whoever. They lift up and they exalt a person. They always replace the worship of God with something else. And so we have one true God. We worship him. We worship him in truth. They always replace that with something else. Here's the point that we see with our, with our lesson today. They are always marked by division and separation. We're the one true church. We're a, we're a repair, a restoration of the one false church. That's what they say. There's always division. There's always separation. When you find that, uh, you can see the marks of a false religion. Man's creations, and here's the deal, are always less than God's. They always lead away from God. They always lead to sin. They always end up in disunity. Last point is this. So how do you know? And I think that's, a, that's an interesting thing. These folks show up on your door, and they've got this New World Translation, and they're going to tell you these things. How do you know they're not telling the truth? These folks come, and they've got this idea. How do you know they're not telling the truth? How do you keep it straight? Well, for the third time, here's the answer. You have to have a heart given to God, and with a heart given to God, you go to his wisdom. You go to his word. Is this the same Christ? Is this the same word of God? Is this the same gospel? You go with your heart given to Christ, 
and you search out the word of God. You go to his wisdom. On our sheet, there's, there's one last verse in Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Um, this is the New Testament tie, and this will be our conclusion. It says this, Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. As a follower of Christ, that's our pattern. As a follower of Christ, that's what we do. We serve others. We submit to others. We we build up others. We don't tear others down. We are for them serving in the image of Christ. Think about that, those verses. What if they had done that? What if Rehoboam had said, hey, I'm going to serve the people. What if Jeroboam had done that instead of tearing out in anger? What if Israel had done that? What if Judah had done that? That is our model as a follower of Jesus Christ. We are unified in the truth and then we serve one another in Christ-like humility. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Glad you're here tonight. I'm going to ask if you'll stand, please. All right, let's pray. During Father, we come. We're thankful for tonight. We're thankful for uh, your truth. We're thankful for your word. I pray, Lord, that as we hear it, that we consider it, uh, that we think about it, that our foundation is, is built upon tonight. But I also pray as we hear tonight that we would be doers of your word, practitioners of your word, shaped by your word. Some of us tonight, that we'd be convicted by your word and we would would repent and turn and walk away from some things. Lord, I I pray for our church tonight that as the truth has been spoken and taught from our littlest kid to our youth and and such a a weird time to all of our adults, um, that your truth has been made plain and accessible, and that we grab a hold of it and we're shaped by it. Lord, we we pray for our church that you bless it, that you lead it, that you stand in the center of it. And I pray, Lord, that we're about your business, uh, preaching your gospel, uh, proclaiming good news, pointing to our Savior Jesus, all for your glory, for your name's sake. Lord, I pray for these that have gathered in this room. Bless them, encourage them. uh, And then we just tell you we're thankful, we praise you, and we worship you. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here to submit.